last time on Bullets and Rust. After nearly getting my head blown off, I crashed for a night with my old friend, Mark Hirsch. The flame that used to live between us may not be around any longer, but he's still the best friend I've got. After having a night to sleep off my near-death experience, I had to keep Justine from jumping the gun. She's so eager for answers, she's raising Cain all across the city. If she keeps this up, the same person who plugged her old man is going to come back for her. And finally, I managed to track down Killian, who is a broken, drunken mess. Liam's disappearance has finally driven him to the edge. It turns out, he's not the hard-hearted bastard that I thought he was. Still, that doesn't prove he's innocent, and his alibi on the night of the disappearance keeps getting weaker and weaker. One thing's for certain, I've got three separate cases and answers to none of them. If I don't get some soon, someone's going to end up dead.
Monday morning brought a stiff neck and a bad headache. I spent the night on the couch in my office's hidden room. Nestled behind a sliding bookcase, the nook is almost impossible to find if you don't know what you're looking for. I woke early. On Friday night I'd met with Kelly Fitzpatrick, a rival investigator I'd caught tailing Abner. Later, she revealed that she worked for Abner's boss, Iratu Shimiyoro, the man I was supposed to meet this morning. So far, I hadn't made much progress on any of my three cases. The blackmailed executive, the dead hoodlum, and the prosecutor's missing son. What a lousy way to start the week. The missing kid was nowhere to be found, and Justine was out for blood. I was hoping to talk her out of her quest for revenge, but that was going to take time. And as for Abner's blackmailer, well, they'd been careful enough to evade my clutches. For now. After sucking down half a pot of coffee, I made my way downtown. This time, the parking lot at Syncorp was almost empty. I walked inside and passed through their notably thorough security. The main lobby's receptionist eyed me warily as I approached. I could hardly blame her. I'm sure I looked like death warmed over. I'm here to see Mr. Shimiyuro, I told her. Her eyes flashed. The subtext of her gaze was unmistakable, and are-you-kidding-me-right-now sort of look. I've got a 7.30 appointment. You can imagine her surprise to learn that I'd been telling her the truth. Her disappointment was almost palpable. Instead of calling security, she had to give me instructions. Her voice was curt and firm, and I strolled towards the elevator she'd indicated from the desk. There was no button or chime here, but the doors swung open as I approached. I stepped inside and found it was just as spartan in the cab. The doors slid shut, and there was a slight sense of movement as the elevator began to rise. For several moments, I listened to the soft mechanical hum that propelled me upwards. When the doors opened, I expected to find another hallway. Perhaps a receptionist there, too, one sitting behind a massive stone desk. Instead, I was greeted to a vast, empty floor. It was the largest personal office that I'd ever seen. The tiles underfoot were lacquered black marble, polished to a mere finish. On my right, a large aquarium ran down the entire length of the building. The other two walls were massive windows. Several stands were arranged in an orderly pattern, blooming out from the pathway that ran down to the center of the room. Each stand presented its own object. One held a painting. Another had a six-foot model of the Titanic. Yet another carried a pair of European broadswords. Then, at the end, standing behind an ornate wooden desk, a tall, slender figure was rimmed by the morning light, like a Greek god cast in gold. Come in, Detective. Kelly Fitzpatrick was sitting nearby, relaxing in a large leather chair. She said nothing as I approached, but she wore a Cheshire grin. It's quite the view, I offered. I've always loved the sunrise. There's something about the way the sun crests over the horizon. It drenches the world with fire. It's impossible to look at the sunrise and not be left in awe. Not many people get to see it like this. Not many people have worked as long as I have, Mr. Adams. Is that so? See, I think there's a lot of people who toil their whole lives but could never get past your lobby's security. I don't look down on manual labor, Mr. Adams. But what I've done takes more than a strong back. I built this company from scratch. I'd met men like this. Unable to admit that their rise was as much a stroke of luck as it was their own ingenuity. Iratu's story was well told. He was the only son of a poor family from Hong Kong, 
He'd come to the United States to study at one of our universities, but he never went back home. Instead, he'd founded one of the fastest-growing technology companies in the United States. His face had graced the cover of Forbes, and scathing profiles had been written about him in the pages of Wired and Gizmodo, just to name a few. He was already a billionaire, and before the year was done, his fortune was likely going to triple in size, and yet he still needed his ego stoked, trying to engage me in a battle of wits. Unfortunately for him, that was a game which I was too tired to play. Listen, Mr. Shimiro, is this really what you wanted to talk to me about? You certainly don't waste any time. I'm not being rude, but you're a busy man and so am I. Don't take offense, I know that you're a busy man and so am I. Quite the contrary, Mr. Adams. I respect that kind of directness. Too many people want to blabber on about everything. Now let's get down to business. He motioned to a table on his left. I walked over and took a seat. Kelly sat down across from me, while Aradu took the chair at the head of the table. Ms. Fitzpatrick tells me that you gave her quite the scare the other day. Well, she was snooping around a client's house. A client who happens to work for you. Of course I do. I told her to. I don't suppose you'd care to enlighten me as to why. Iratu paused, glancing towards Kelly. He nodded silently, tilting his head back towards the elevator. I should be here to- Don't make me say it again. Kelly's professional, but folks in our profession were not too keen on being bossed around. We call ourselves independent investigators, after all. It's right there in the name. However, she didn't bother to argue. Instead, she pushed herself away from the table and disappeared into a small hallway behind the elevator door. The moment she was gone, Iratu leaned forward. Do you know her reputation well? Well enough. How trustworthy would you say she is? That sounds like the sort of question you ought to have asked before you hired her. Everyone does background checks on their employees, Mr. Adams. This one's only retroactive. Kelly's good. Better than most. Can she be trusted with information? I've never heard anything that would lead me to believe otherwise, but I can't make guarantees on her fidelity, Mr. Shimiguro, just my own. Iratu smiled at that. He laid his hands flat on the surface of the table. She came highly recommended. When I asked for a list of private detectives, I asked for the best ones in town. Her name was very high on the list. I don't doubt it. As was yours. A flicker of pride almost made me smile. Of course, he was probably just blowing smoke. Flattery's a great way to get someone to lower their guard. Do you know why I hired her instead of you? Did my secretary not pick up the phone? No. It's because I heard that you were a former cop. When I asked how you came to change careers, the things I heard were less than flattering. You shouldn't have asked a cop, then. After Miss Fitzpatrick came to me and told me about your little encounter, I've been considering my options. She was good, but you were able to get the proverbial drop on her. That has not gone unnoticed. Listen, Mr. Shamiro, that's all very nice to hear, but I... If I offered you the same job that I had hired Miss Fitzpatrick for, what would you say? Most investigators work their whole lives without ever getting an offer like this. Companies like Syncorp, they make regular use of investigators like me, being their go-to gumshoe would change everything. I'd get paid enough to live comfortably for the rest of my career. So it might come as a surprise to you to hear which word came tumbling out of my mouth. No. You're not tempted? I don't poach clients, Mr. Shimiro. 
and my caseload's heavy enough as it is. Call me down the road, we'll see what happens, but I've got other commitments that need to be settled first. Iratu grinned. And here I thought that you'd be the kind of man I was warned about. You impress me, Mr. Adams. Loyalty and discretion do go hand in hand, wouldn't you say? They can, but in my experience, each one cuts both ways. Very true. So let's talk. I've hired Ms. Fitzpatrick to help me tidy the house before my company goes public. I'm not sure how well-read you are on this sort of thing, but there's a lot at stake over the next few weeks. Our IPO could make us into the next Facebook or Microsoft. Or the next BlackBerry, I replied. Once, the largest smartphone company in the world, what was left of BlackBerry had traded hands a half dozen times over the last decade. The tech industry wasn't kind to those who got left behind. Quite right, Mr. Adams. And that's why I need to put out the little dirt fires that are burning around the edges. I can't afford to let these territorial squabbles engulf everything I've built. That what Kelly's doing for you? Putting out fires? In a manner of speaking. Well, it doesn't look like it's working. Unfortunately, you are correct. So what's your goal? Eliminate the people causing a fuss? It's not as simple as that. But I'm willing to do quite a lot for this transition to go well. That includes buying people off if a settlement means that they'll walk away quietly. But not the kind of money your top executives would stand to make by cashing in their options, right? Very true. But then I'm also not trying to buy Mr. Forrest off. Like all the upper executives, he controls a share of stock options to distribute how he sees fit. That's a position of considerable trust. All I'm trying to do is end this little feud before it costs us billions. His feud? I don't suppose you care to elaborate on that. Iratu paused to look me over. What did he hire you for? A personal problem. Running into Kelly, that was just a coincidence. Or a stroke of bad luck, depending on your point of view. You offered to buy her pictures. Why? Let's say that Abner's not fond of being photographed. Iratu was sharp. I suspected that he already knew what was going on, but he wanted to see how much he could pry from me. Yes, I suppose a man like him wouldn't be. You don't need to cover for him, Mr. Adams. I've been a business partner of Abner Forrest for more than a decade. I know all about his more salacious habits. That's fair enough, but it's not my concern. All I know is that he doesn't like being photographed. Now, back to this feud. Who here doesn't get along with Abner? <laughs> a million people or more. But I think you mean to ask who it might be that's blackmailing him. That would be one way to frame it. For the last year, he's been clashing with another executive in the company, Lucy Televisier. Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Once again, her name was in the middle of this mess. She'd sent her assistant to look through Abner's mail, and there was no love lost from her on his end. Maybe this case really would turn out to be that simple after all. Is Lucy in a similar position of trust? She doesn't have the same ownership percentage, but Lucy controls an equally important part of my legacy. She helps shepherd our products from a slick prototype into a well-rounded product. She coordinates the development process with the marketing side of the company. She forces the engineers and designers to alter their babies to turn them into products that people actually want to buy. And that's made her a lot of enemies. Like Abner. Abner doesn't like many of the choices she's made. She's notoriously ruthless. That's why I hired her. But it hasn't endeared her to him, I'll admit to that. And she's openly bristled that someone from the development side of the business would stand up to her. I think she's used to them taking orders without much of a challenge. 
And where do you stand, Mr. Shimiro? Abner helped me build this company, Mr. Adams. For that, he'll always have my loyalty. He's an inseparable part of our history. I look at Lucy and I see someone that can help me shape my company's future. Perhaps even replace me. So you're conflicted? It's the very definition of a dilemma. What were you hoping to do about it? I don't know. I hired Kelly to look into both of them, to see if there was more to the squabbles than just a bit of office politics. She's already assembled quite the dossier on Lucy, but she was only starting with Abner when you came along. I was wondering if you might save us a bit of legwork. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you there. And if I hired you to dig up dirt on him? If you offered, and if I took the job, then I'd only be able to tell you what I learned after you'd hired me. What Abner's told me in confidence, that's strictly off-limits. You're quite the principal man for such a mercenary profession. Yeah, I don't like it much either. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Mr. Adams, I'm afraid I can't help you very much, and your sense of ethics prevents you from helping me. That seems to be the case. If I can give you one bit of advice, you might consider checking on Ms. Televisier. I hope that she's not involved in something as thuggish and petty as blackmail, but you never know. And if that's the case, well, I hope it'll be some time before I need to find a replacement. I'll take that under advisement, Mr. Shamiro. With that, the meeting was over. Iratu pushed away from the table and walked back towards the window. I made my way towards the elevator. Once again, the doors hissed open just as I approached. I spent the ride down considering what Iratu had said. He liked Lucy a lot, but he hadn't put her above blackmail. That said almost as much about him as it did about her. And while Abner had described a certain enmity between the two, he'd actually understated how serious this rivalry really was. I drove back to the agency at once. I needed to type up what I'd learned, and I needed to find a way to get closer to Miss Talaverger. Finally, I was making some progress. I was walking up the stairs to the agency when I noticed a short young woman waiting at the door. She was slight with slender shoulders and curly brown hair. Her eyes were two different colors, one blue, the other brown. At most, she was twenty-five. She had an innocent face, but I knew not to trust it. A pretty face can hide a sinister mind. And, considering what I'd been through the last few days, I couldn't be too careful. I jammed my hand into my pocket, pretending to look for my keys, but once it was in there, I wrapped my fingers around the butt of my gun. Can I help you? Are you Adam's Investigations? That's a company, not a person. That's not... Are you Mr. Adams? That depends on who's asking. The girl extended her hand. I'm Samantha, Samantha Larkin, but everyone just calls me Sam. I took her hand to shake it. My other was still in the other jacket pocket holding onto my pistol. At this range, it didn't matter that I was using my offhand. What are you here for, Sam? I saw a notice on Craigslist. About a receptionist? I hope the position's still available. I just posted that last night. Yeah, I was hoping you hadn't already hired someone else. <laughs> I laughed. That would be awfully fast. I thought you said the position needed to be filled immediately. I'd written exactly that, in capital letters, but qualified people rarely alive on your doorstep unannounced. Can you type? I asked her. Yeah. Can you type well? Fifty words per minute. All right, what sort of experience do you have? She shrugged meekly as I unlocked the door to my office. I made certain not to turn my back on her as we stepped inside. 
With each passing second, I was more convinced that she was on the level, but I couldn't afford to take that for granted. I answered phones for the BW help desk. I worked for my cousin's company for three summers in a row. I set my things down on the reception desk, sliding my way into the chair. Sam remained standing on the other side. Your cousin's company, huh? What did you do there? I helped him digitize his files using Excel, Word, and access to- Can you lie to someone's face? I get- wait, what? I don't know. It's part of the job, kid. Okay, sure. I remained unconvinced. She must have seen my reaction, because a moment later she jabbed her finger down on the desk, speaking much firmer in tone. If that's what you need, I'll do it. This isn't like working at a gas station, you know. The people who come here, some of them are desperate. Angry. Scared. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. You'd be the one bearing the brunt of that emotional fallout. I understand the job, Mr. Adams. Really? Ever held a gun before? No. She spoke crisply, forcefully, without hesitation. If she took offense at the questions, she was keeping it to herself. That was something, at least. And if I asked you to keep a gun at the desk? If you need me to. Linda always had a loaded revolver in the top drawer. She'd only ever pulled it once, but when she had, she'd needed to fire it. If Sam had looked up, she might have seen the patched bit of plaster covering the bullet hole. You have any experience answering the phone? At the help desk at college. I also helped my friend who had a radio show on the college station by screening calls. You know, weeding out the cranks. Perfect. Here the cranks are our best customers. Sam shrugged, and I found myself strangely charmed. Of course, I was also eager to get some help. I'd learned about plenty of things over this weekend, things that ought to have a paper trail, and I could hardly afford to lose another day at the county clerk's office. How soon can you start? Her eyes shifted, as if from disbelief. Are you offering me the job? I mean... I could start now, I guess. You said you needed someone who would start right away, didn't you? Yep. I reached across the desk. Congratulations. You're hired. Thanks, but are you sure that's it? You don't want to run a background check or anything? Is there anything I need to know about? I mean... I waved her off. We'll get to that later. Right now I need someone to man the office. As it were. Anyway, I've got three jobs running right now, which is two more than I'd like. Your predecessor quit without giving notice, so I'm up to my ass in errands. Sam tilted her head. Why'd she quit? It's not important. It sounds important. Do you want the job or not? I do. Then it's not important. She glanced at me warily before she reached over and finally took my hand. And just like that, Sam became the new office manager at Adams Investigations. That'll do for now, but we'll get to it later. Fair enough. I'd finally caught a lucky break. I wouldn't get a better idea of Sam's character from some time, but at that moment, she was just what I needed. 24 hours worth of leads were weighing on my mind. I wrote down the notes from my meeting with Aratu, adding to the list of other things that needed a closer look. Then, I set Sam loose looking into Kindle O'Malley. I'd let her fly under the radar for far too long. Now it was time to see what the former Miss Malone was trying to hide. Taking a seat at the computer, Sam looked nervously in my direction. I'm not saying I don't want to help, but I don't even know what to look for. Don't worry about that. Get me everything you can. Everything on her. Where would I even... I stepped over and pointed to a list of icons on the computer's desktop. As a licensed investigator, I had access to a dozen databases that aren't accessible to the public at large. And if I'm being honest, 
you'd probably be uncomfortable if I told you how much I can learn about you just with publicly available information. The internet stretches in every direction imaginable, which means that everything from Little League rosters to mugshots are just waiting to be uncovered. LexisNexis, it's a powerful thing. Look her up in these. Then once you've done that, go down to the registrar's office at the Justice Center. Get whatever they have on file. Just be careful. Kindle's husband works down there, so you might get a little bit of pushback. If they try to ask you what you need it for, just say that your boss needs the file. If they won't hand it over, tell them you're going to come back with a subpoena. Why do you want the file? Listen, some people do change. But if you want to learn about who someone is, looking into the past is one of the best ways to do it. If Kindle has a criminal record, <laughs> who knows? And you can't tell that just by talking to her? People do their best to hide the things that they're ashamed of. I know that, but you're a detective. Aren't you supposed to be able to see through that kind of bullshit? I'm an independent investigator, not a human polygraph. Besides, everyone has something they're hiding. Every single one of us. The only question is how deep the deception goes. I need to understand who Kindle O'Malley really is. She's not going to tell me that herself, so I need to figure it out. You've got to be careful of that, though. Careful of her records. My dad sells mutual funds, hedge funds, retirement stuff. He's always looking at the stock market. And one of the first things he taught me about was that past performance is no guarantee of future performance. On that, at least, she had a solid point. It's not bad advice, kid, but in this business, we live and die by our hunches. There's no such thing as a guarantee. You're forgetting something. Yeah? What's that? The lies people tell you can sometimes be just as revealing as the thing they're covering up. Hmm. That was something that I already knew all too well, but there were a lot of people who never understood it. Within her first hour, Sam was already starting to impress me. Did your dad teach you that, too? Sherlock Holmes. I walked back to my office with a smile on my face. One thing that was abundantly clear was that I needed more information on Lucy Talaverger. If even the head of Syncorp knew that they hated one another, then Lucy wasn't just a suspect. She was the most likely one. So far, the circumstances had perpetually kept her at arm's length, but those same circumstances now aligned to put her firmly in my crosshairs. If that had been the only thing on my mind, I might have said that things were going well, but Abner's blackmail was hardly as important as the case of Liam O'Malley. I kept waiting for Blake West to call, to tell me that they'd found a body, but the call never came. Even still, every passing minute made Liam's safe return less likely. Considering what I'd learned about his parents over the weekend, Kindle O'Malley was looking less innocent by the hour. In most cases, I'd break into her computer, root around. Even with the recent improvements to privacy features, it's disturbingly easy to find out what someone's been looking at, whether it's lingerie or chloroform. But there were complications. The police were swarming over this case, and that sort of snooping came with risks. Thankfully, I had another source of information, one that was five foot ten and fond of whiskey. The last time we spoke, Mercy was angry because I'd been so frank with Kindle about the issues with her marriage. I could only hope that was water under the bridge by now. I'm not sure I want to talk to you. Huh, <laughs> so much for that. Listen, Mercy, I'm glad I got a hold of you. We need to talk. Privately. Listen, Mr. Adams, we had a bit of fun. But I'm not one of these girls you can call out of the blue for a cold drink and a quick fuck. This isn't a booty call. So what is it? Even when you like someone, it's not that hard to lie to them if it gets you what you want. 
Is that because I do this for a living, or is it the inherent selfishness of human nature? There's one or two questions I forgot to ask you about Killian. Things that need clearing up. There was a long pause while she considered my offer. What did you have in mind, detective? Meet me for a drink. I'm buying. Are you sure this isn't that kind of call? I'm working on leads, Mercy. You might be able to help me solve this thing. That remains to be seen. All right, detective. I'm amenable. I'll be there at nine. Don't be late this time. I'll see you there. And Mr. Adams. Yeah? When you come back to my place, bring a pack of Turkish Royals, will you? I smoked the last ones last week. Sure thing. I bought the cigarettes and shoved them into my front jacket pocket. Before leaving the office, I'd pulled off my button-down shirt and pulled on a pair of gray overalls. I looked like a generic repairman, one of the most effective disguises in my repertoire. If given the choice, I might have rented a van, but there wasn't time for that. Just the overalls would have to do. I drove out to the residence of Lucy Televerger in one of the small suburbs of Cleveland's west side, Olmsted Falls. Years ago, this had been a sleepy community with more farms than traffic lights. These days, it was full of cookie-cutter developments, rows and rows of ticky-tacky houses, all looking just the same. Lucy lived in one of those, the villages of Lakeside. I wound my way around the curving streets, doing my best to appear inconspicuous. When I found her house, the driveway was empty. I approached the front door, making a quick glance for any security devices, like those doorbells that have cameras attached. However, despite being an executive at one of the largest tech companies in the country, Lucy's door was surprisingly old-fashioned. I was pleasantly surprised as I rang the bell. Since it was the middle of a weekday, I didn't expect anyone to answer. I rang it a second time, waiting for more than a minute before I was convinced that there was nobody at home. Unlike Kelly Fitzpatrick, I wasn't going to try to sneak around a place like this unless I knew it was empty. Once I was sure that there was no one home, I was free to find another way inside. It took me less than a minute to find a first-floor window that wasn't alarmed. I climbed into her dining room and closed the window shut behind me. I was about to head further inside when I felt something rub against my leg. I stopped. Holding my breath, I turned my eyes down towards the floor. <sighs> and there, a gray tabby was pressing its forehead against my ankle. Reaching down, I allowed it to smell my hand. Then I proceeded to scratch it under the chin. Within a few seconds, the cat was purring. Thankfully, Lucy didn't have a dog. The cat followed me as I looked around the house. I didn't spend much time wandering. There are only a few rooms where people keep their secrets. Offices, bedrooms, basements, and attics. I don't waste my time looking anywhere else. People don't put their valuables inside a box of Pop-Tarts. If you're looking for documents, then you make a beeline for the computer. As I search for Lucy's office, I know the palpable absence of mementos and family photos. The home was positively barren. Lucy looked to be one of those people who was all business. Her living room had one small shelf with a model ship on display. Her office was near the rear of the house, and all that was inside was a slender bookshelf and a desk. I sat down at the computer and turned it on. The surface of the desk was glass, and the computer itself was one of those sleek, all-in-one affairs. As it hummed to life, I let my eyes wander. 
The rows of books all had similar titles. Discovery of the Bismarck. Into the Deep. Trailing the Endurance. So, Lucy had a thing for shipwrecks. At my side, her cat continued to rub my leg. I scratched its chin again, this time noting the name around the collar. Mrs. Chippy. People tend to be pretty sentimental, and a name like that doesn't come from nowhere. I pulled out my phone and did a quick Google search. Apparently, that was the name of the cat on a ship called the Endurance, part of a doomed expedition trying to reach the South Pole. As the computer's password prompt appeared before my eyes, I darted back towards the bookshelf. There are ways to break through the password screen, but it's easier and more invisible if you don't have to bother. And while there were plenty of other shipwrecks represented, the name Endurance seemed to have a unique prominence, and of all the events to have named her cat after. I typed in the name Endurance, but that would have been too easy. Looking at Wikipedia, it told me that the leader of the Endurance's expedition was a British explorer, Ernest Shackleton. I typed his last name in, and the computer welcomed me with a cheerful series of tones. The weakest link in any security system is the people using it. I plugged a portable hard drive into her machine, copying as many files as I possibly could. I wasn't stupid enough to try and look through them here. There'd be time enough for that when I got back to the office. Less than an hour after I arrived, I climbed out the same dining room window I'd come in, pulling it shut behind me. I climbed into my car and sped away, glad to leave the ticky-tacky homes behind. I headed north, into the suburb of Bay Village. I'd stopped here once before to talk to Petra, the O'Malley's housekeeper. However, back then, I didn't know nearly as much as I did now. With my newfound information, there were questions I hoped Petra could answer for me. The last time I came, I parked down the street and snuck my way over. This time I was more direct. I had my regular pants on under the overalls, so I pulled off the disguise and put on another shirt. Then, turning on the voice recorder on my phone, I made my way to the front door. When she came to answer, Petra glared at me unhappily. You again. Nice to see you too. You told me you would find Liam soon. It has been several days since then. Yeah, I'm trying. So you come back here, hoping to get me to tell you more? The sooner I fill in the gaps, the better my chances are of bringing Liam home alive. You think it was one of the O'Malley's? You think they hurt their child? It's not accusation that you come... I'm not accusing anyone. Yet. It's a kushmar. This whole thing. The poor child. I'm starting to suspect that he's no longer alive. Why? Because it is this long and no one has contacted us. No calls. No letters? Why kidnap the child if you don't plan to ransom him back? Most of the answers are not good, detective. Independent investigator. Whatever. Listen, I need to know what Killian and Kindle are like as parents. Petra sneered. I told you before, it will be bad for me if my employers learn that we have spoken. And it won't. The things I could tell you. 
What are you looking for? How do they act around Liam? To each other? They are reliably fecal. They run hot and cold, sometimes both all at once. Mrs. O'Malley, she sometimes does not talk for days. Other times, she cannot stay silent, not even for a minute at a time. One day, she will approach her husband like he is the love of her life. Other times, she keeps her distance. Only... Only what? This cannot have come from me. You must promise that. You've got my word. I suppose you might have heard that sometimes he hits her. It's not news, but how often would you say that it happens? It used to be more, but it was hardly ever out in the open. Usually, I come by and see she had a bruise on her cheek or black eye. Once, there were marks around her neck. I was worried that one day I would come here and find her dead. But then I learned the truth. The truth? There are a few times that he has struck her in anger, but many times the bruises come from... Let us say that Mrs. O'Malley has a rather extreme sense of adventure. What do you mean? Petra rolled her eyes as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. When she and Mr. O'Malley are together, their lovemaking is not gentle. Do you understand me? I nodded. I'm never sure which marks come from these games and which from his temper. But I know that six months ago, there was an argument that was not a game. After it was over, she left for several months. And what about Liam? Did Killian ever hurt his son? She shook her head. Not that I have ever seen proof of. He is very warm toward the boy, more than the mother. It is very strange. His mother? Do you mean Liam's or Killian's? Mr. O'Malley's mother has been dead for some time, I think. But Kindle, you're saying she's not kind to her son. That's not what I said. She's kind, but also cold. Her kindness? It is not her natural way. There are many times when it feels as though she is being nice because she thinks that she is supposed to act that way, not because she wants to. She is putting on appearances, but it is impossible not to see. That is part of why she came back. So what do you mean? She took him to her sister's, but the boy, he wanted his father back. That was big reason she returned. People get divorced all the time. Killian's savvy enough not to get locked out of any custody battle. He wanted Liam all of the time, if you get my meaning. Do you think that Killian threatened to take full custody if she divorced him? He wanted it. However, I am sure the fighting would have come out. But then, there were things she was afraid of him sharing too. And they had document that made divorce very hard for her. What do you call it, uh... A prenup. That makes sense. The guy's a goddamn lawyer. He didn't want divorce at all. But she did. Then they fight, and they bicker, and then she comes running back into his arms. I have never understood her. I'm finding that I do less and less. But this is not the first family I look for. All are troubled, Mr. Detective.
all parents hurt their children in some way or another. That's a dark way to see the world. It's the only way to see it unless you want to blind yourself. We're all trying to make our own way. His family, they have troubles like everyone else. Liam, he is a sweet boy, but one day he will be the same. That does not mean that people don't love him. Most people don't try to hurt the people they love. <laughs> Often, it is the people we love who hurt us the most. Is that so? I wasn't always housekeeper, Mr. Detective. Now, I am trying to make the most of the years I have left. I like being with children. I like helping them grow. Now that mine are gone, this is what I can do. This is why I help you. Because I do not think that anyone else has chance of finding this child. Thanks for the help. Do not be grateful. You have small chance, I think. More likely, the boy is dead. Fair enough. But let me ask you this. Do you think either one of them is capable of... They're all capable, Mr. Detective. All of us. But if you had to guess... I would not say it is them. But maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, I'm not the one hired to find him. That is you, yes? Yeah, that's me. Petra had given me a better perspective on the O'Malley's case, but it wasn't exactly comforting. A real motive continued to elude me. All the evidence was circumstantial. I was hoping that Mercy could help shine a light on what was going on. Before that, however, I needed to freshen up. I hadn't been back to my house for several days, not since one of the local crime families tried to put a bullet through my brain pan. However, I knew they couldn't afford to wait forever, and I needed a shower. As I turned onto Franklin Avenue, I took note of the cars parked along the street. The last time I'd driven by this way, I'd gotten chased off by a dark-colored town car. Today, it was the usual mix of low-cost imports and heavily used domestics. Fits, Camrys, Souls, Malibus. Even still, I circled the block a couple of times, and then I parked on the next street over, cutting through my backyard. I approached my house with a deliberate caution. This time, I had my pistol in my hand. I wasn't going to get murdered without shooting back. Of course, considering my current situation, that all seems cruelly ironic, but we'll get to that eventually. The point is, I was armed and ready to go. The wooden steps on the back of my apartment are only a couple of years old. The previous tenant broke the old ones when they moved out. Apparently, they dropped the refrigerator. I'd gone through a decent amount of trouble to loosen them up, that way, they'd creak whenever someone was coming by my house. It made it difficult for anyone to get a drop on me. Of course, it also made it particularly annoying when I was trying to get back into my own place. I had to climb up over the side of my back porch, hugging the wall until I made it to the doorway. Then, I used my key to unlock the door and slide inside. The kitchen was dark, and everything was right where I'd left it. I deadbolted the entrance shut behind me. Then I checked the front door. That was still locked, too. I walked into my living room, letting out a deep sigh of relief. That was when I heard someone cough behind me. <coughs> oh, shit. I whipped around. I started to lift my gun, but my arm was grabbed by a pair of massive hands. They twisted. Hard. I yelped as the pistol slipped from my fingers. That's when a huge fist slammed into my forehead. 
I tumbled backwards, slamming into an end table on my way to the ground. Stay down! I tried to roll sideways, but a boot slammed onto the ground beside me. I reached over, grabbing my attacker's leg and pulling as hard as I could. He almost lost his footing, but he managed to steady himself against the wall. Then, as he regained his footing, he kicked me firmly in the ribs. As I curled into a ball, the shadowy figure reached down and lifted me up, placing me into my own easy chair. Then he leaned over and flipped on the lights. At long last, I had a good look at who was beating the shit out of me. I recognized Quentin Gilletti immediately. He was a well-known amalgam of muscle and pig iron, roughly arranged into the shape of a human being. His face looked like it had been chiseled from granite, but by a sculptor in the midst of an epileptic seizure. He'd spent the last twenty years moving up the ranks of the Limacoli family with a certain no-nonsense form of efficiency. Fuck, Quentin. Shut up. Why, so you can pummel me in silence? He crossed the room with three massive steps. His hand lashed out like thunder. My head snapped back and my cheek went numb. I told you to shut up. You know why I'm here? Yeah, I do, but I'm sorry. There was a typo on the invitation, Quentin. The potluck's not till next Tuesday. He hit me again, but it was almost worth it. Quentin got off on intimidating people who were smarter than him, which was almost everyone. Refusing to play his game might leave you broken and bruised, but it was the only defense against his sheer force of fist. For such a smartass, you're a real fucking moron, you know that? <laughs> I've actually heard that before. Somewhere in hell, my 10th grade algebra teacher is laughing her bony old ass off. Showing up at the restaurant was stupid. Sticking your nose further where it doesn't belong? That was even dumber. Listen, Quentin, I've got a lot on my mind. I don't suppose you could be a little bit more specific. Ugh! This time he hit me in the gut. However, it almost felt perfunctory, like his heart really wasn't in it. How about this, Adams? Stay out of the family business. Think you can remember that, or do I need to write it down? I think you made your point. Sometimes it's just as well to let the dead bury the dead. Wow. Maybe Quentin was more poetic than I'd given him credit for. Listen, I told him. I already told Little Fish that I was- This isn't about that. We know you're looking into Spencer's murder. Back off. Unless you and Justine want to double book your funerals. So, this was about Spence. As much as my face hurt, I decided I was going to see how far I could push. He was part of the family, wasn't he? You don't mind that someone put him in the ground? Quentin shook his head. Spence put his ambition before the family. We told him that if he didn't drop it, he'd have to deal with the consequences. Little prick fucked around and found out. No loyalty among thieves, huh? Spence was a fucking moron. Quentin said that without any apparent irony. He was going to get fucked sooner or later. Thankfully, it wasn't over family business. No reason to go to war over a spineless loser. That's touching, Quint. Really. Quentin glared down at me. Do I really need to beat you half to death before you get the message? I lifted my hands. No me message received, big boy. You can tell Little Fish that I got it, loud and clear. That better be true. If I have to come down here again, I'm not going to be so friendly as I am right now. You get it? Obviously. Quentin scoffed and turned towards the door. <laughs> Fucking asshole. He walked out the front door slamming it so firmly that the entire house seemed to shake. 
The moment he was gone, I grabbed a box of tissues and wiped the blood from my face. Now, I might be a smartass, but I don't have a death wish. And as dumb as Quentin might be, he did know how to handle himself. You don't last as long as he has without having a cruel sort of cunning. Now I was trapped between his threats and my promise to Justine. And if I didn't get her the answers she wanted, she'd go to someone else. And if that happened, well, I didn't like her chances. Grabbing my phone, I dialed her number, hoping against hope that she didn't send me to voicemail. Thankfully, she answered on the second ring. Well, any news? I just got a visit from Quentin Gilletti. Fuck, what did he say? He warned me to leave well enough alone regarding Spence. Your name was mentioned, too. I don't suppose you know what he's talking about. He's telling you to fuck off. That's not what I... How does he know that we're working together, Justy? I'm doing what I have to to avenge my husband. If you're not careful, you're going to get us both killed. I thought you wanted me to ask around. Yeah, and then you told me that you were being followed. I thought you had a good sense to lie low for a few days. I'm not just going to sit back and wait. I'm not that kind of girl, Zeke. Clearly not. But if you keep stirring shit up, you're just going to make it harder for me to get the information you ask me for. It's been five days. I know. You don't know how much I miss him. Justy, you know the old saying about revenge, right? Before you go looking for it, first dig two grits. I know what I need, Zeke. And I know right from wrong. I'm going to see the man who did this put in the ground, you understand? You're not going to talk me out of this. Justy, I just don't want to see you It's not about what's legal or good. It's about justice. A man like you wouldn't understand. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Just get me the name, Zeke. Stop wasting time and get me the name of the man who murdered my husband. With that, she hung up. How the hell was I going to work my way out of this one? I shook my head and tried to push it from my mind. If Quentin wanted me to back off for a few days, it's not like I was short of other things to look into. I decided to call Blake West, run some of my new information by him, see if he could give me any insight. Since he was still a cop, he might have access to resources that I didn't. He might be a corrupt son of a bitch, but he might be my best chance of solving this thing. I tried calling him, but he didn't pick up the phone. Looking at my watch, I decided the best way to find him might be to surprise him. I mean, hell, what else could go wrong, right? I walked out back to my car and drove over to the second district. This was the same building that I once worked out of. Back in the early 2000s, I was on homicide. Blake West was my partner and my friend. As I stood outside, I realized it was the first time I'd been back since I was kicked off the force. Those were strange days. Near the end of the decade, the Trovalones decided they wanted more clout in the city. They knew that they needed to fight the Limacolis to get it. As the two families went to war, we started catching bodies all over the city. In the midst of all that violence, I became associated with several of the people I've introduced you to during this own miserable story. Antonio Littlefish Fisher, Quentin Gilletti, Spencer Ghent, and Brady Francone. Brady was Angelo Limacoli's right-hand man, and he shouldered quite a load on behalf of the family. He also ran a large-scale prostitution ring up and down the city's west side. Everyone knew about it, but we were never able to make a case that would stick. Then Brady caught a bullet in the throat. A lot of my fellow cops shrugged it off, said good riddance, but not me. I'd become a cop because I wanted to make the city a safer place, and we weren't going to get there just because we didn't like the people who were getting bumped off. Brady was a piece of shit, a pimp, but the punishment for that's not murder. 
Against direct orders, I dug into Brady's death. I hadn't backed off, and I learned that there had been private assurances made to the Trovalones that if they went after the Limacolis, the police would look the other way whenever we could. Someone in City Hall was looking to settle scores using whatever means were necessary. It was a devil's bargain, and trying to bring that to light had cost me my career. In my estimation, it was a small price to pay to be able to keep my soul. But Blake West? He'd been all too willing to go along. The very person I trusted to protect me was the one who shoved the dagger into my back. As I put my hand on the door, my chest felt tight and my throat went dry. For a moment, it was difficult to move. Call it a kinetic allergy. Jesus, get a hold of yourself, I muttered. I opened the door and stepped inside. I approached a service window where a young kid I didn't recognize was manning the desk. I'm here to see Detective West. Without looking up from his paperwork, the kid muttered something about West not being in until eight. Part of me was relieved, but another part was anxious. I didn't exactly feel like waiting, but what else could I... Well, son of a bitch. I never thought I'd see you in here again. God damn it. I turned around to see my old boss, Stanley Powers. He had a round face and soft eyes. He looked like Officer Friendly, but inside he was a rotten son of a bitch. As a lieutenant, he loved to flaunt his rank, pushing his weight around, especially with the people who didn't like him. And that was virtually everyone who'd ever gotten to know him. He was also the man who'd fired me for not playing ball. Needless to say, there wasn't much love lost between us. Christ, Adams, you've got some real chutzpah showing your face around here been over a decade, Powers. Yeah, and here I was thinking you might have learned some sense in that time. Maybe it's time I made more effort to educate you. As bad as it had already been, my day was only getting worse. Bullets and Rust is written, recorded, and edited by Abraham Dunn. The theme music is written and performed by Avril McAnally. The cast for this episode was... Johnny Davis as Quentin Gilletti. Caitlin Hawkins as Justine Gent. Allison Lightbody as Mercy Malone. Bridget Papagenitis as Samantha Larkin. Christopher Scully as Iratu Shimiuro. Joe Steigerwald as Kelly Fitzpatrick. Suzanne McWhorter as Petra. It should go without saying, but this series is entirely fictional, as are its characters. Any claims of resemblance to actual people says more about the person making them than it does about this show. This has been a Needle Drop production. Next time on Bullets and Rust. Going to the 2nd District Police Station was a mistake, and now I find myself eye-to-eye -eye with the corrupt son-of-a-bitch who took my badge. Also, I need to figure out if this Sam girl who applied for my open secretarial job is actually on the level. Later, I not only have another close encounter with Kindle's sister, Mercy Malone, but I also find myself face-to-face -face with Michael Trovalone, head of the most powerful crime syndicate between New York and Chicago. All of that, and more, on the next episode of Bullets and Rust.